Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we are bringing you preaching tips on Genesis 22, verses 1 to 14, the first reading scheduled for the lectionary on June 28th, 2020, fourth Sunday after Pentecost. And we have a special guest for you today. That's right. Our special guest exegete this week is Ethan Schwartz. Ethan is a newly minted PhD from Harvard University, where he studied prophetic speech in the Bible and how the Bible presents and formulates prophetic speech. He's also starting out as an assistant professor this fall in Hebrew Bible at Villanova. He also studies how the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, came together and how the Hebrew Bible was interpreted in the first century, especially in early Christian communities and sectarian Jewish communities. If you're interested in some of his work, he has an article out in the periodical Dead Sea Discoveries, an article all about how ancient authors, uh, particularly a a Qumran text, how they used biblical texts. So if that's your gig, then we'll provide a link to that on our website and you can check that out. Ethan's committed to bringing biblical studies into productive conversation with contemporary religious life, which makes him a great fit for our podcast. To that end, he's shared his academic work in a number of synagogues, institutes, and churches. Ethan Schwartz, welcome to First Reading. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, really great to be here. And like you said, you know, I, th- there's a natural fit between, you know, the kind of work I try to do outside of the academic community and what, from my understanding, this uh, podcast is about. So uh, to get to, you know, I do a lot of that on the Jewish end, and it's exciting to see it on the Christian end as well. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's always fun to find like-minded folks in this uh, strange world of biblical academia. So, <laughs> Now, um, Ethan, when I was putting your bio together, um, I did a little research on your background, also known as internet stalking, so I do apologize <laughs> for the creepiness of that. All good. Um, but I did come across this delightful little tidbit that says your wife is, and I think I'm saying this right, Rabanit Lea Sarna. Did I say her name correctly? Okay, now, if I'm correct, that's an... Orthodox or modern Orthodox title, is that right? Yeah, she's part of um, sort of the first the first cohort uh, of um, Orthodox female rabbinic ordinees, uh, in America at least. She's part of this small group that, uh, you know, is obviously, as you might imagine, a, a sort of controversial development in the Orthodox world, female uh, Orthodox rabbis. And the, the term Rabbanit is uh, basically the feminine form of the Hebrew term Rav, from which yeah. uh, rabbi comes. So uh, that's that's the reason for that title. Cool. You know, related to uh, synagogue life, do you have any thoughts on sort of the connections, either similarities or maybe distinctions between the Jewish and Christian practices of, of preaching homiletics? Have you thought about that at all? Yeah, definitely. Um, the role of the rabbi in America as basically a homiletical preacher is very influenced by by the, their Christian counterparts. And that this is very much kind of a this idea of the rabbi giving a sermon, um, which is now such a staple of American synagogue life, is uh, is from what I understand is very heavily indebted to Christian models and basically a kind of effort to fit Jewish practice into something that's more recognizably American. So, um, huh. but you also then have aspects of it that even even with that influence are very different from what's happening in Christian contexts. Like the person who's going to be getting up at the pulpit in a synagogue and giving like a sermon um, is 
is generally going to be a rabbi, but there's no kind of, um, that, that, that's, that's kind of totally a cultural conventional thing. There's no, that's not like religiously Mm -hmm. ordained anywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. and as a result, you actually get a lot of lay leadership in, especially in Orthodox synagogues. So there, there are, there are some differences too, in terms of like flexibility there. Yeah. Well, Ethan, we're really excited to get to talk to you, uh, about this very important passage in both of our traditions. And so uh, maybe we could start out by having you read it for us uh, in English. Yeah, Ethan, and when you read it, the lectionary says to stop at 14, but why don't you go all the way through 19? Because that's, um, it's a part of the story that gets kind of sliced off um, that would be good to just hear in the midst of the rest of it too. Sure, yeah, definitely, okay. This is the JPS uh, Jewish Publication Society translation I'm reading from here. Sometime afterward, God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. And he said, take your son, your favored one, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. So early next morning, Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. He split the wood for the burnt offering and he set out for the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his servants, you stay here with the ass, the boy and I will go up there and we will worship and we will return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son, Isaac. He himself took the firestone and the knife and the two walked off together. Then Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father. And he answered, yes, my son. And he said, Here are the firestone and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. They arrived at the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son, Isaac. He laid him upon the altar uh, on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. Then an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. And he said, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one from me. When Abraham looked up, his eye fell upon a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the site Adonai Yireh, whence the present saying, on the mount of the Lord there is vision. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I swear, the Lord declares, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your favored one, I will bestow my blessing upon you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore, and your descendants shall seize the gates of their foes. All the nations of the earth shall bless themselves by your descendants because you have obeyed my command. Abraham then returned to his servants and they departed together for Beersheba and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Mm, Nice. It's such a good story. It's funny, you know, anytime I hear a good story, I I react physically to it. And this one, it's such a kind of tense story that even though I know, like, I very well know how this one ends up, it's still like I get tense as I'm reading it. Um, there's just a lot there. Um, but before we actually get to it, so 
it starts with this phrase, you know, this story starts out after these things, which, so if you were to try to summarize the first 21 chapters of Genesis, I mean, we'd be here for a very long time, right? So <laughs> what what would you say would kind of be the most important these things that this story is trying to note it's coming after? Some of the things that Christian preachers might want to keep in mind as they're looking at preaching this text. Yeah. So there's a few things I think you can do with this phrase. The, mo- the most basic, uh, and in some sense, I think, it's one of those things where I think that on the one hand, this might well be kind of what's really going on here. But on the other hand, it's 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 not very interesting. But I, I think it should just be said, which is that this is just a stereotypical formula for introducing a new narrative event um, ah, sure. that, you know, like it, it's it, it's I, it's sort of like once upon a time, if if there were an English version of once upon a time for something in the middle of a story, I off the top, <laughs> off, off the top of my head, I don't know if there is one, but like, um, you know, the JPS translation has some time afterwards, a, a, a little bit more of a fluid translation of the literal, you know, after these things. But actually, I think they pretty much, whatever, maybe it'll come up. There's a lot of things about their translation I take issue with, but that one, I think they really get. I think it just means like some unspecified amount of time later, but there are some some interesting narrative ways to to think about how this relates back. And I, I guess I would just point to two. So the first is just that that very end of the previous chapter in Genesis uh, 21, we actually have the founding of this site, Beersheba. So you need to understand what Beersheba is for, for right for that to make sense. So it, so it, it could be seen as relating directly uh, directly back to that. And then the other the other thing I would say in terms of how it relates to earlier material, um, takes into account something that has been a major staple of source criticism of, of the Pentateuch. And and just if if it's been a while for folks since your seminary days, um, this is the branch of biblical studies that tries to study how the Bible came together. Because um, we, of course, know one person didn't sit down and start in the beginning, uh, but bits and pieces were kind of drawn together and quilted together. And so sometimes what folks look for is to try to see if we can tell from the text how things related. Um, so you were going to say something about that particular kind of way of looking at this text too, Ethan. A lot of scholarship has gone into determining where this text fits into the four sources that the, the classical idea of how the Pentateuch came together, the documentary hypothesis, which you know is, is far from a scholarly consensus these days, but, but is sort of the bedrock of the field. Mm-hmm. There, there's a, a lot of scholarship has gone into figuring out how this fits in. And... Um, the the prevailing idea, I would say, especially in, in certain parts of 20th century scholarship, is that this is part of the the Elohistic source, the E source. The uh, binding of Isaac's story seems to be kind of the the conclusion to a trilogy of stories about Abraham in the E source that basically span. Genesis 20, 21, and 22. You have the story of Abraham passing off Sarah uh, as his sister, which then leads to the Elohistic version of the whole intrigue with Hagar and Ishmael. And then the sort of the pinnacle of this trilogy then is the is um, the story of, of Isaac. And, and the truth is you don't even need source criticism to note these connections. They're just there. M- many striking parallels between the story of Hagar and Ishmael on the one hand and the story of Abraham and Isaac on the other. Because those connections are so important, and especially within the kind of uh, uh, the interest that the Bible has in drawing a contrast to a certain extent between Ishmael and Isaac, you could well read these previous things that the narrative is referring to as the things that just happened with uh, 
with Ishmael. And it's sort of like, okay, we now know what happened to one of Abraham's descendants. Now we're going to look at sort of the, the, you know, the, the other, the other side of that. Yeah. So this, so this is kind of like a, um, if you, if you take mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. these la- these kind of discrete few chapters in Genesis, this is kind of like building up to a, a, this pinnacle story of Abraham and Isaac. Would that be, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think you could see that again, both on the sort of reconstructed level of this hypothetical um, e-source, but also really in the canonical form of the Abraham story, right? And this is actually um, one of the uh, sort of staples of, of classical rabbinic interpretation of this story is that Abraham, uh, basically the rabbis sort of interpret out of the, of, of the narrative a series of tests and this, uh, I know you wanted yeah. to talk about the word test at some point, so maybe we'll get to that. But but this is often seen as the, the, the climactic uh, test of Abraham's career. And mm-hmm. uh, appropriately enough, right, it's really, it's basically Abraham's exit from from mm-hmm. the story, right? I mean, this yeah. is this is sort of, this is the last major, this is the last major incident in, 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 in what we're told. And then we shift to the Isaac stuff. So what could you tell us about this i this nasa this idea of being tested or tried sort of in the hebrew bible more broadly and then specifically here in this text yeah so first of all i'll just say that it's worth it's worth noting how much um the implied narrator kind of takes control of the the stakes of the story yeah. by immediately flagging I mean, it really, I don't know, I, I've always been kind of resentful of this first verse because um, <laughs> it, not, not because I, I'm theologically troubled by the idea of a test. I'm not a theologian. That's not how I think about these things. But like, <laughs> but, um, but, but for me, it, it, it robs the story of the drama to a certain extent mm. because it basically tells you right from the beginning that this is, there's some degree of so, sort of dissimulation or, or, or I don't know if that's the right word, but it warns you from the beginning, right? Um, there's something that's very theologically pious about this. It's, try, it's trying to, from the get-go, um, make sure that you don't think that God would actually ask Abraham to yeah. sacrifice his son. But I think it does rob the story of a little bit of the drama. Uh, the word nasa. So this is a very, is a very pliable, a very complex word that's very contextually determined. Uh, mm-hmm. And the truth is, the more I've been thinking about it ever since you uh, sent me your notes that this was something you were interested in, the more I've come to actually really wonder whether uh, the idea of test is quite right here. Um, oh, nice. And, All right. And, and again, not on a theological level, but just on looking at the lexical profile of the word, yeah. like the you know the way the word shows up. Because it's true that when the word nasa is used with Israel as the subject um, and they are testing God— Right. It's it. It's usually in the sense of like a, a, re, a rebellion. Right. So you have. Um, um, so the yeah. so the so that's the that's the the sort of folk uh, ideology, the 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 source of the name of the pl- of the place Massa. Right. In the mm-hmm. pair Massa and Miriva. Right. That this is one of these places where Israel was rebellious and therefore kind of tested God it, as if in the sense of like test testing. Like, are you really God? Like, are you really powerful enough? Right. Like, yeah. like, like, oh. Yeah, I love this because it's not this idea of like let's test God to see what God's going to do, but it's almost this more idea of like let's we're trying God's patience of like testing God's patience there, right? Yeah, I li- I think you could literally translate it almost like they're trolling God, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like that's um, you know that that that's I think a good colloquial approximation. Um, awesome. But what's interesting is that the the word nasa when God is the subject is a lot more complicated and. If you situate this story of the Akedah as part of this E document, 
then it's part of the same overall narrative as the the main frame of uh, of the of the Sinai story. You actually also have this 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 word uh, this word nasa um, and uh, specifically uh, let me let me see if just quickly here I I'll, I'll read the uh, I'll read the JPS translation here. Uh, Moses answered the people. This is after um, the, after the Decalogue after the fire and the mount. Right. So it says all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the blare of the horn, the mountain smoking, um, and the, basically the people freak out um, and they're like, uh, Moses, you go talk to this God. He's you know, we're gonna die. We don't want to die. Uh, and then Moses <laughs> Moses says, "Be not afraid, for God has come only in order to test you." That's the JPS translation. Levavur nasot etchem, and in order that the fear of Him, yirato, so from yirah, the fear of Him mm-hmm. may be ever with you, so that you do not go astray. So this is a, an idea I first saw suggested. I don't know if this is the first time it was actually ever suggested, but that I know from an article. Um, by the uh, Jewish biblical scholar uh, Moshe Greenberg from, uh, it looks like the date I have here is uh, 1960, a journal of biblical literature article from 1960, where he talks about the word nasa in this uh, Elohistic um, revelation story. And he actually says that it doesn't mean test. Greenberg actually argues that there's a more basic meaning of this root, this Hebrew verbal root nasa. Uh, nasa factative, uh, um is, uh, it, it, forget about it, is associated with verbs of seeing, knowing, and learning. Its usage is uh, basically give X experience of, give someone experience of. So this idea of like, um, of, of facilitating an experience in some way. Um, wow. And actually it's interesting because experience, the English word experience, uh, actually its Latin etymology is from the Latin word for to try, so it actually oh, no it, well, think about like the word experiment right in English. Oh, so, sure. so it actually connects uh, even etymologically. There's a, there's a parallel in English um, because of Latin between the between testing and experience. Um, and I actually think that because these are are both part of this e source, it's very tempting to try to understand and God put Abraham to the test in Genesis 22 in terms of actually this idea of facilitating an experience, right? Wow. And, it, and and what, what's also really interesting there is that also in, in Exodus 20, at the end of the Decalogue, it doesn't just say this idea of, of you know, of nasaing or giving an experience, but then it also says, what, what what is the purpose of this? That the fear may be ever with you. And of course, we haven't gotten to this but the, yet, but the Akedah ends with God saying, Atayadati, now I know that mm-hmm. the fear of God, you know, that you have this Yireh Elohim, the fear of God. So there's also this connection in 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 Exodus between Nasaing and fear and like uh, and establishing. So so it might well be, I think, that this is less about testing in the sense that we normally think about that, mm-hmm. and more about putting Abraham in a situation that kind of facilitates. Um, this experience of Yireh Elohim, however we want to translate, fear of God. Yeah, I like that. It's, it's kind of uh, like an educational totally. <laughs> moment. Yeah, I think I think pedagogical is definitely a word that you could use to describe it in this light. So um, he, he brings Abraham into into a lab to learn something about God. Right. Exactly. Uh, and whether that makes this kind of you know challenging story easier is what you know. That's for. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I'm not sure it does that, but <laughs> but it definitely makes it different. I think, and it and I think yeah. it I think it uh, mitigates a little bit against this idea that that 
that people get uncomfortable with nowadays that God is kind of uh, tricking Abraham in this unethical and cruel way. It might not remove the ethical problems with the story, but at least sh- yeah. it shifts the terms a, a little bit. So Yeah, it gives you a slightly different perspective on it. Yeah. Let's let's jump into some of that messiness uh, going right through into verse two, where we hear exactly what it is that God is asking Abraham to do. I think we should say something about child sacrifice, <laughs> because that's the heart of this and and uh, what that might have meant in in the context of the story and in ancient context. What do we want to say about that? Well, and and before before we even get there, I just want to flag something we've mentioned a few times and just kind of put it in. Um, our modern context, you know, just to name the fact that we're in uh, the midst of a pandemic right now where victims of domestic abuse have less ways out than they did before. Um, so as we as we talk about child sacrifice, as we talk about trauma, um, preachers, as you're thinking about your congregation, um, you know, this this might be a really great time to start to address some of these issues with this text. This might be too tender of a time, perhaps in your congregation, if you know of situations to address these issues with this text. But if nothing else, it's worth thinking through what this text might have to say in that modern context. Um, And ironically enough, one of the best ways to get there is to talk about what it meant in its ancient context. So um, Ethan, if you're talking, if you're thinking human sacrifice, child sacrifice in the ancient Near Eastern context, um, what sort of thing might preachers need to know? I think you're absolutely right that it's crucial to situate first, like as a first step, right? In terms of what this text is ultimately going to mean when it's coming from the pulpit, right? It should not be determined by historical contextualization, but I think that that's definitely a responsible first step in terms of, of, right, what did child sacrifice mean in the ancient world? Um, Something that for me is one of the really, uh, I would almost use the word kind of spiritual aspects of historical scholarship is that it gives you an opportunity to to whatever extent it's possible, uh, overcoming our own historical situations and trying to think the way that ancient people thought and to be charitable to charitable to different ways of thinking. And um, obviously, child sacrifice is bad. I hope I shouldn't have to. I, should, <laughs> hope, I, I hope I shouldn't have to say that out loud. But but uh, the visceral response in the Western world that we have to child sacrifice, I think, is very much owed to the Bible. But um, but I think that our visceral reaction to it is such an abhorrent practice then sometimes prevents people from at least for a second putting that on hold and trying to get into the mind of ancient uh, ancient worshipers to understand what this practice meant in order to better understand even those biblical texts that resist it, right? Exactly. And I, so, yeah. um, so child sacrifice does seem to have been a reality in the, in, in the ancient world. Um, and the question then, and this is really, this is the million dollar question with Genesis 22, is what is this text trying to say uh, about, about the practice? Basically, everyone says, oh, it's obvious. The story of the binding of Isaac is a polemic against child sacrifice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, like that, that, you see that all over the place. And this text yeah, is actually, yeah. you know, for all that we've talked about, about, the, about how the text is disturbing to the extent that God would test Abraham in this way, there's also a way in which Jews and Christians often express a great deal of pride in this text as being like such, a, such an exalted rejection of the practice of child sacrifice. And I think that doesn't entirely make sense as a way of reading the text because it doesn't make sense that God would ask Abraham to perform a practice and then reward him for his willingness to do it. Right. If it were, if it were like truly this completely abhorrent 
practice that God didn't want, right? There's clearly something nuanced going on here because ultimately God does not, you know, God does not allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, right? But it's not totally clear to me that we can read the story as a straightforward polemic against child sacrifice. Like, like the relationship with child sacrifice is much more complicated there. This is a difficult text, both for us as modern interpreters and through the history of reception of this text, and perhaps even back into the composition of the text itself. Now, we've, we've been able to uh, really sort of uh, get at a lot of the heart of this text already just by kind of thinking about the themes of these first couple verses. For the sake of time, we're going to need to push through to some preaching advice on this. And uh, Ethan, I wonder, could you say a little bit about just the Jewish liturgical use of this text? Yeah, so I just want, there, there, there's a lot that could be said because it's a prominent, uh, it's a prominent uh, text in, in, the, in the Rosh Hashanah uh, uh, liturgy. It's sort of the centerpiece um, uh, reading from the Torah. Um, so I'm not going to get into that. I actually just wanted to talk about a much more mundane uh, context, which is that uh, it's actually... Um, it's part uh, the, the this section and, and not the Christian liturgical equivalent, but actually the full thing up until verse 19. So until the end mm-hmm. of the story, this whole little unit um, is is, uh, is re- recited as part of the daily morning uh, morning prayers, sort of the preparatory oh, yeah. prayers. Um, and it ends with this rabbinic, um, this really fascinating rabbinic uh, kind of um, postscript that I actually wanted to make sure to read. So so I'm reading here the translation is from one of the standard um, Orthodox um, prayer books uh, here. So this is not my translation, but I, I, you know, this should, should suffice. So, so, uh, so, so, so you read, you read through, you read through the Akedah and then you recite the following. Um, Master of the universe, just as Abraham, our father suppressed his compassion to do your will wholeheartedly. So may your compassion suppress your anger from us. And may your compassion prevail over your other attributes. Deal with us, Lord our God, with the attributes of loving kindness and compassion. And in your great goodness, may your anger be turned away from your people, your city, your land, and your inheritance. Fulfill in us, Lord our God, the promise you made in your Torah through the hand of Moses, your servant, as it is said, and then it quotes uh, Leviticus 26 here, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also my covenant with Abraham, I will remember, and the land I will remember." Um, oh my gosh, I love that. Yeah, so it's fascinating because basically what you have is this sort of elegant reversal where Abraham, <laughs> so they, the word they use here is suppressed, but actually I think I think the more literal Hebrew translation of conquer for the word kavash is mm-hmm. actually much is actually much better that Abraham conquered his mercy in order to be willing to perform this gruesome thing. And then so sort of on the merit of that, we ask God to basically do the opposite, right? Uh, yeah. Um, conquer this negative thing by means of this positive thing, just as you know, just as Abraham uh, did did the opposite, and it, it really uh, it ties into an important uh, function of this text in Judaism as as one of the um, pinnacle examples of this uh, this important rabbinic idea of schut avot in Hebrew, the merit of the of the patriarchs, which is basically that like. The, these righteous ancestors of ours, like we're, you know, obviously we're terrible, we're sinners, we've done nothing but 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 mess up. But these righteous patriarchs um, kind of racked up spiritual credit for us that we're still kind of coasting by on, right? And and mm-hmm. and the, the Akedah, this is really, I think, its function. Not going to go into details, obviously, but this is its function in the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. It's the pinnacle example of Skud Avod, of the merit of the fathers. That like basically any any um, 
standing that we have with God is in some sense due to Abraham's faith in this in this story. And so that I think is sort of the common thread between various Jewish liturgical usage of this. And that's what's coming through in that little postscript. But mm -hmm. yeah, that's really fascinating because there's kind of a, a parallel tradition in Christianity, especially in sort of reformed uh, circles, Lutheran probably too. When Christians are messed up and sinful, that when God looks at us, God ought to look at the merits of Jesus Christ and to mm -hmm. judge us with that insight rather than our own sinfulness. There's kind mm -hmm. of a parallel tradition there in the in the Jewish world of looking at the merits of the fathers and especially of Abraham in this context. Right. Awesome. Well, let's let's move into uh, preaching pitfalls and angles. Tim, what sort of ideas or cautions do you have to to offer up there? I think we've uh, discussed several of these in the in the body of our conversation. We've talked about sort of having the the reality of domestic abuse in mind as you take up a text like this, so that you're not saying things without being conscious of what the experiences of your congregation are. So that's that's important. I think mm -hmm. um, we've talked about the ethical ambiguity of testing and how that plays out in this story and some different, you know, some creative and uh, exegetically faithful ways to, to read that concept as well. We haven't mentioned yet Sarah, and I, I think um, mm. maybe that's one thing to just touch down for a moment. Sarah is totally missing from this story. And uh, that's, uh, I don't know if I would necessarily classify this as a preaching pitfall, but I think it's it can be helpful if you're sort of uh, creating a, a world for your listeners in this story. One creative way to get into it could be to try to frame this from Sarah's perspective uh, as sort of the missing character in the story. And that's something that's been done in reception as well. Um, but that would be kind of an interesting, uh, interesting approach to take in a sermon. Mm -hmm. Anything that, else that either of you have in mind as far as things that preachers should watch out for in taking up a text like this? In terms of your first and last points, I would just echo that like the first and foremost thing about interacting with this text in a religious context where it really like means something like more than just historic history to people is being sensitive to the resonances, the painful resonances that this language might have in terms of people who have traumas in their own life related to domestic violence or uh, or or even even um, uh simply complicated relationships with parents uh, and, and children uh, is that like, this is a story that I think can be really yeah. triggering for uh, a lot of people. Um, and, and I think, right, it's really important to confront some of the difficult aspects of it, but do it in a sensitive way. I know that that's like something that I've seen Jewish um, homiletical approaches to the story really try to strike that balance of of an honest engagement with the story, but also one that is, is is being sensitive to the various painful things that this could be bringing up for the audience. So definitely, I think that's crucial. And then just coming back to your point about Sarah, um, you know, I think that that could actually really be related to the um, to the to the issue of, of trauma and, and and pain. I mean, there's there's uh, maybe you were alluding to this when you talked about reception, but there's a very famous rabbinic uh, uh, interpretation of this, which basically the reason why Genesis 23 begins with Sarah's death is because she basically heard about the, the, that this had happened, right? Uh, and yeah. obviously didn't know what the outcome was and basically died at, at, the, at, the, at the pain and shock and fear of finding out that Abraham had taken her son, you know, uh, of her mm -hmm. old age to, to go and, and sacrifice him. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think uh, also 
in terms of being sensitive to the gender aspects here and like what does it what does it mean that this that this this woman who struggled with infertility obviously there's there's an infertility component here it's also a very live issue uh, for many people in our religious communities um, but I think also in terms of you know the uh, what it means for this woman who struggled with this infertility was granted this miraculous child and then without any uh, willingness on her part had that child taken away right I think trying to bring through uh, you know, modern midrash or homiletics or however you want to say it, bringing Sarah back into this story for congregants is like a is definitely a productive path here and could be healing, I think, in some contexts. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely, yeah, I love that idea of giving voice to what uh, remains silent in the text. Perhaps, Rachel, how would you preach this text? I got a couple different angles. I just I am enthralled with what you were saying, Ethan, about NASA, about testing and about the different ways that it's used in the Bible when people test God versus when God tests people. I don't think I think you were totally right in saying I don't think it solves this text necessarily, but it it does kind of crack it open a little bit. It gives us a different way into it that um, maybe opens a little bit more breathing room. So I just love that idea that what's happening here is an experience that somehow changes all of its characters. Um, And I think that could be a really interesting way if you take Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and God and ask how does this experience change all of those characters. Um, you you maybe want, not want to talk about God as a character in front of your congregation, but you know how to use you know how to use churchy language. No, I, I, but that's that's a really thing to point out. God does experience a change, yeah. right? God says atayadati. Now, now I, I know, yeah. right? There is like right, there is right. character development on God's part. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I mean I think of um, of kind of accepting this moment as a really fraught moment in the Bible. Um, can be really uncomfortable for folks, and yet there are so many fraught moments in our lives which um, which do not get solved. Um, Ethan, you use the phrase that this story doesn't answer the questions, and I think that's actually a, a could be a preaching angle because life doesn't answer the questions, and the experiences that we go through that change us sometimes those don't answer all the questions right now. And I think we're in the middle of a huge one of those where you can sort of theologize, philosophize, think about this whole pandemic any way you want to. Whatever angle you come at, it's not going to answer all of those questions. So in the midst of an experience like that, what do you do? And and that's where I think the visual aspect of this story can be so helpful um, to, to preach kind of allowing this moment of big questions to stand and then ask, okay, and so now in the middle of that, what do you see? You know, what do you see differently now that you are in this pandemic? What do you see differently now that your life has been threatened and you've come out okay? What do you see differently now that you know that this person trust you a hundred percent completely you know what what are you seeing now in the midst of this moment that you didn't see before um again doesn't answer all of the ethical problems with this text and i think if you come across an interpretation that says it answers the ethical problems don't trust it because there just isn't a way to do (laughs) that uh but that those are a couple of the angles that i saw and would maybe come at this with yeah i i actually was thinking about uh that same phrase in the beginning of the story about the about testing and i've i've actually used this text um in in sermons as the concluding sermon in a series about sort of these episodes of abraham and god and and the way that abraham's getting to know what this god is like 
And the the angle, the preaching angle that's been helpful to me is thinking about this as uh, sort of Abraham's final exam in this long series of encounters with God. In an academic environment, a final exam is sort of like an opportunity for the professor to catch you making mistake, you know, to slip up, do something wrong and have that sort of, ah, you haven't measured up. That's one way of looking at testing. But the other, and this is actually reflected in some of the uh, rabbinic midrash as well, that this is an opportunity for God to prove Abraham or to demonstrate what Abraham has learned over their history together. This idea of lifting up Abraham as an example, a ness of, uh, of faithfulness. So in a way, that's another way to look at a final exam, right? It's an opportunity to demonstrate what you already have learned. And so that's, that's one way that I've looked at this text is, uh, has Abraham really learned that God is trustworthy when the rubber meets the road and when the ultimate sacrifice is called for? After all of these obstacles to the fulfillment of God's promises that God has overcome one after another, is Abraham willing to, to, uh, to trust God even when the obstacle comes from God's self? I, I think if I could just very quickly jump in on a point you made there. I, that, you, know, you, you alluded to this sort of rabbinic uh, um, uh, exegetical connection of the verb nasa with a homonym nasa with a sin and an aleph instead of a samak and a hey right. to to lift right. up, right? That's definitely that's a way that there's ancient traditions uh, reading the word that way that that Abraham uh, that God exalted or lifted up Abraham and then also connecting it with the idea of nace as like a standard or a sign um, and some sort of public testimony um, and and that something I've been thinking about is uh, in in connection with both of those ideas is what if we didn't. Uh, imagine that this story is supposed to be paradigmatic for all of us, mm -hmm. right? Like God is making Abraham special in this way, right? Mm -hmm. If we, if we mm -hmm. follow those rabbinic, um, those rabbinic, uh, sort of connections, ex exegetical connections. And you could, you could read, you could read that in the way that I think most Jews and Christians do, which is that Abraham is the model of faith for all of us. But what if you read it as actually he's a nace, he's a standard in the sense of like, he's this pinnacle, this, uh, this uh, this paragon of, of of faith that we're actually never like normal Jews and Christians are never going to be able to approximate in our own lives, and that you know it might uh, to connect with uh, with Rachel's point uh, about how it doesn't answer the story doesn't answer the questions that like you know we're never we're never going to get like this this uh, this sort of tidy nice answer about what it's what it actually looks like to live with that much faith in part because it's actually not possible for any of us mm -hmm. right and this is something that was unique to one point in history to one person mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. and in some sense i think that at least makes it maybe a little easier to sit with some of the difficult parts of the story that this is not necessarily meant to be a recipe for all future times Hey, finally, Ethan, uh, we didn't mention this in your bio, but you and your wife are the proud parents of your first child, a newborn. Yeah. And I just wonder, could you reflect for a minute on what it's been like to read this particular story uh, while holding your own newborn son? <laughs> yes. Well, as I, as I was joking to you before the recording started, I, I'm, I don't have any uh, three-day journeys planned to Mariah anytime soon, <laughs> and not, not just because of the lockdowns from the pandemic. Um, but uh, I, I'll say that um, it was, uh, when, as I reread this story in preparation for this uh, uh, session, um, 
what I found harder to to read was not the story so much as the scholarship about the background of ancient uh, ancient child sacrifice. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it had an interesting impact because on the one hand, it 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 felt I didn't think it was possible to think child sacrifice was even worse than I already did. But then you know, actually <laughs> having a child, it turns out, does make that possible. Um, but but on the other hand, I also gained, I think, a surprising sympathy for just how desperate those uh. people must have been, right? And you read some of the inscriptions that were, um, you know, written about when and where child sacrifices were performed. And you read about, you know, it was to stop a Plague, right. I mean, it's just so contemporary that, you know, yeah. there's so many examples of of this being done to stop, uh, you know, to stop disease. And um, and, you know, obviously it's a it's a horrific practice. But I think it's important to remember that contrast in contrast to the biblical polemic against this practice, it's not at all clear that when ancient people did this, they were like enjoying it or something like that. Yeah. Right. That it was actually right. something that was done in tremendously dire situations. Because it was seen as so powerful, right? Right. And yeah. and, and it, it it underscores um uh, uh it underscores the um I think shifting the story from the from just being about the violence done to the to the victim, but also to about uh the what it means to be willing to part with something so valuable is another sort of uh, productive angle of thinking about this story and, and kind of redeeming it from some of these more gruesome features. And I mm. find that I've been, I've, I've found that like having a child now of my own has, has cued me in more to just <laughs> what it was that Abraham was willing to give up and made me even more in awe mm-hmm. of his willingness to do so. So, yeah. Well, I think we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Ethan, what a fascinating and fruitful conversation. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was great. Well, if you are interested in more of Ethan's work, we'll have a connection to his uh, latest article up on the website. And uh, I would say keep an eye out for whatever he's going to be doing because it's going to be great. We also have past episodes on the website that you can listen to if you are interested. And subscribe while you're there or on your um, iTunes or wherever you get fine podcasts. And um, we would love to hear feedback. Uh, So until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. As is often the case, we used some music this week from Blue Dot Sessions. So we want to say thanks and give credit there. And thanks to you all for listening. We'll talk to you again next week.